0: I'm trying to figure out how to protest while not being compliant, but not being a jerk, but at the same time, respecting other people's emotional and intellectual needs.
1: But the problem is, if you wore that shirt, wouldn't that be like instituting your own regime demanding obedience?
0: What's going down, everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden, sometimes Austin Hayden Smith. I don't know who I am, Troy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and I am Troy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, that's good. You just go by the one name now. Yeah, you know, I'm Madonna Cher. Troy. Yeah, you know. You know I'm it's talking good because tr- successful. It's a, it's a strong name. I, you say Troy, and I think of Brad Pitt as Achilles. So ah uh, yes, yeah 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 yeah.
1: Did a lot for me in high school when that movie came out. Yeah,
0: yeah. That was uh, I. I had a buddy who was obsessed with that movie out of high school, and like it's fine. It's fine. It's fun. You know, tr- like Brad Pitt's a babe, and Eric Bana is pretty awesome. He's babe too, I guess, and. Um, Helena (laughs) Troy, I don't remember who played Helena Troy, but I'm sure she was a babe, so it's a lot of like pretty. I think it was
1: Diane Kruger, wasn't it?
0: Oh, yeah, okay, I think so. so All babes, Orlando Bloom's a babe. Um, the stories just about you know sexual desire and how you're gonna fucking destroy the world because
1: you just want to bang. So, yeah, I guess there's something interesting. Do you it? think if that came out today, it would be acu- <laughs> accused of being white supremacist, like The Northman is? <laughs> oh, is it being is it being accused of that? Well, I mean, I'm not sure if it's, I think it's being accused by some of that, but it's also being like co opted by some people on the far right for you know they always always had like a hard on for Viking culture and stuff like that, especially <laughs> as portrayed by Alexander Skarsgård, right? Uh, who who so, is like a god walking
0: on earth? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, I if watched it
1: was six plus six. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. I watched Phantom of the Opera the other day. It's out here in Sydney. And my my partner and I went with our parents and I uh, I got out of it afterwards. And I was like, man, this is like a fucking how come no one co-ops Phantom um, as as a figure like like I'm sh- there's got to be like some sort of like conservative right wing um or maybe online troll person who's really into theater who's like, you know what the Phantom is gets me you know like he's this guy who has been forced down into like the dungeons or the basement of this opera house and all he wants is the joys of the flesh but he's been cut off from the joys of the flesh and he can't get the joys of the flesh so he's an incel right and uh, so then he and and he finds this woman And he can only hide behind a mask to communicate with her. And he has this repressed sexual desire because he can't actually, you know, communicate with anybody or touch anybody or anything like that because everyone thinks he's a freak. And so he's internalized this. And so, one, he wreaks havoc on the people of the opera house and terrorizes them you know, even murders, murders some people. And then at the same time, he trains this young woman on how to sing and he's her angel of music. So he's like using music to sublimate his libidinal desire. And then finally, he thinks that it's the moment when he's going to be able to like copulate with her but then another dude comes in and it's the handsome rich rawl and he's like of course it's fucking rawl and he's like of course you're gonna choose chad the fucking chad over there <laughs> and the chad comes in and then finally what ends up happening the only way he gets released from his hatred is hatred is she sings to him and she's like hey man it's not your face and your scars and stuff like that that make me hate you it's your soul that your internal hatred and then she comes over and she's like but maybe I can show you love and she goes over and she gives him a big old smooch and then he's like okay you know what now that I got me some and I've experienced it you're right I can I can change too and then he lets them go and lets them live happily ever after and he just goes and he hides in, in, in his, his cave and presumably just makes amazing music for the rest of his life I was like it's like a fucking
1: incel dream right like dude you could yeah you could first of all yeah incel wish fulfillment but also this sounds like it's like ripe for a contemporary zoomer remake where the whole thing happens on a message board or a dating app or something and it's not a mask <laughs> but instead it's a bored ape that the that the phantom has and he and he helps um the burgeoning singer form her church's style indie pop synth pop band Right. And helps write the music for it. Um, yeah, that sounds amazing. I, w- I would go see that movie.
0: Yeah. The the Phantom of and then like whatever the, the online social forum is. Yeah. The Phantom of TikTok. <laughs> oh, man. So good. Um, anyway. Yeah. Uh, so I guess we'll get into this this talk today. Do you want to give people a little teaser about what we're going to talk about?
1: Yeah, so we're going to talk about an article that came out a while ago in The Atlantic by philosopher Eric Schwitz- uh, Schwitzgabel. He's a philosopher at uh, UC Riverside. He's written a whole lot on kind of the sociology of philosophy as a discipline, um, which is where I most know him from and think his his work in that vein is really interesting and good uh, in large part because it's, it's highly original and unique and not a lot of people write on that um, part of philosophy as a discipline in America. Uh, He's also done a lot of work on, like, epistemology and philosophy of mind, which I'm not super a fan of. Uh, It's very different as an an orientation in philosophy than I am, Uh, but it's more his work on the discipline itself that I think is pretty interesting. This is, like, um, this little article is is a little bit more, it's obviously pop philosophy because it's in the Atlantic, Um, but I thought it was more interesting as a springboard for talking about social norms um, surrounding COVID, how they've changed and morphed over the last couple of years and where they'll likely to go in the future. Um, so that was my idea behind uh, reading the thing. I don't know if you felt similarly.
0: Yeah, no, that's cool. Um, and so the the title of the article is The COVID Jerk, and it's based on a book that he has that's called like A Theory of Jerks and Other Philosophical Misadventures, which I actually am kind of a fan of these kinds of... Like you know, Adam Kotsko's books on what is it, awkwardness, and what's the other one? The sociopath book. The sociopath book, yeah. And yeah. Uh, like you and you and I had joked about like a, a book about like badassery, like what makes a badass philosopher, and like that there's like maybe something substantive about the notion of badassery. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I kind of enjoy these types of these types of books. Um, these these philosophy books uh i know sometimes they can yeah, be kind of sh- shitty like pop philosophy
1: books can be kind of shitty but i kind of enjoy them yeah i mean i think the ontology of pop culture is an interesting phenomenon we probably shouldn't take it too seriously but yeah like philosophical tools are meant for everything so they're meant for pop culture and um and pop culture broadly construed to include like you know discussion over burgeoning, uh, themes in society as well as, as well as like art and entertainment, you know?
0: Yeah. So we'll be examining what it means to be a jerk, uh, and how to overcome jerkness. And if you spot jerkness in the world, what, what do you do? What's the appropriate philosophical one analysis and two course of action to jerkiness? Do I don't know what is it? What, what's the adjective here? Jerkery? Yeah, jerkitude? Yeah, something like that. Jerkitude. <laughs> I like it. Okay, good. Um, but of course, you know, we got we got other stuff to get into first. So, do you want to tell people about the results of
1: the patron poll? Yes, yeah, so we mentioned last time that we were going to close the Patreon poll before the next episode, and we've done that, and we have a tie between two different topics. One of them is whether it's possible to be an ethical CEO or bougie class trader. And the other is on the Book of Job. So we have ideas for both of these. So we've decided since it's a tie, we're going to go ahead and do both. Not at the same time, subsequently. Um, we haven't decided on the order yet, but we will be doing probably within the next few episodes, um, both the Book of Job and the possibility of being a bourgeois class trader. So look out for those patron-sponsored topics on the next few episodes. Fuck yeah. I'm excited. But before we get into the main topic today, talking about being a COVID jerk, we got to do what we always do, first of all, on Owls at Dawn, and that is the Shitty Minute. The Shitty Minute, as you all know, is the part of the episode where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears this week. So Austin, what's got you down? Well, there's so
0: much that you can say uh, about what's going on in the world, and that can be... (laughs) something that uh, can be inspiration for a shitty minute. So I, I'm kind of overwhelmed, right? Uh, I got a lot, I got a lot of things to rant about, but I guess what I'm going to rant about is this. Uh, Apparently Bernie Sanders has um, come out and said that he's not ruling out a presidential run for 2024. And so then there's been a lot of people like talking about this and I even have liked a couple of the tweets because, you know, I, I kind of just like tweets relatively indiscriminately a lot of times. Even if I don't like the content, like here, here, <laughs> sometimes I'm kind of like, hey, I, I appreciate your thought um, is sometimes what a like can be for me. Um, but I've, I've seen a lot of people basically say, dude, your time is up. You're 80 years old. Let it go. And yes, he's 80 years old. Uh, two I mean, failed- so Pro is the current president. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, two failed presidential runs. Uh, I, I think actually, there's probably less momentum and less. Um, no, it's not even momentum. Uh, it, it's. I feel like the the political situation now is even less likely than it would have been maybe in the last election for a presidential run of his i mean that's just how i feel right this second i don't know what it would be like in 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 a year from now when not even a year from now probably eight months from now when campaigning starts because they start fucking two years early um but um um i don't know man i still feel like it would be awesome and so my shitty minute is on all these people that are like don't Don't do it, man, because there's no reason to do it. I'm like, well, fucking how cool would it be? You know, like we could start actually thinking about alternative forms of uh, of representational government in the United States, whereas without Bernie, you're not going to get that at all. We're just going to be bludgeoned by the extreme center for the foreseeable future. And now so many people, what their critique is saying is their critique is essentially saying, bro, your time is up. We get it. We we appreciate you so much. But we got to figure out if if there's going to be some sort of true, genuine, like, working class movement or uh, populist movements. It's going to have to be something that comes from someone who's not 80 years old. Like, go out and enjoy your, your retirement years kind of thing. And I'm like, yeah, I get that. But there's nobody There's nobody else right now. There's nobody else that could actually serve as a figurehead for that. Like people talk about the squad, and I'm like, that's great. But there's there's nobody else that really can can command right now the national attention. So I'm kind of like I'm sour on people being sour about Bernie. Not even that they're wrong, but more just kind of like let's just stop being sour. And let's just kind of like for a minute, let's just entertain the idea that this 80-year-old dude is going to kind of – at least inject a little bit of life into politics right now. I don't know how everybody else is feeling in the United States. I'm a bit removed, obviously, not living there. But I just get this sense that there is a fatigue, a political fatigue, a social fatigue, a cultural fatigue that has washed over the people, uh, in my circle at least, the people that I'm listening to. And then even just as bad maybe of sociological research as it is, but just like observing the younger kids on fucking – TikTok and the content that they're producing is far more like like dour than I remember ever content being produced. And maybe that's just because I just we just didn't have mass media production of content and always would have been that way. But it just feels so doom and gloom. So I feel like, like, let's just inject a little bit of life and hope just even even if it just makes our bodies feel a little bit better, you know, like we need that every now and then. And let's just not shit on something as soon as it comes out as an opportunity. Even if you're right, even if you're right at at like the most kind of like analytical level just for the sake of um kind of the poetry of it let's just enjoy the fact that we could have <laughs> something interesting happen you know cuz otherwise it's it's going to be it's going to be either i don't know if it's going to be Biden again like that's going to be very interesting but otherwise it's going to be like Pete Buttigieg or it's probably going to be Pete you know it's, it Pete's going to be Pete's going to be it's going to be Pete versus Trump and um what i can just see i can just see this turning into a mess right so like the the campaign the conversation the level of discourse and that shit matters you know that shit's not like separate from uh the 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 material and structural realities that are facing us you know the discursive level matters and that shit drags people down. It saps your vitality. It saps your life force. It gets you caught up into this, like, productive wheel of media production, which is which is all material anyway. So, like, uh, we just don't need more of that. And I just—that's what I fear more than anything. That's what I worry about. So I don't know. That's kind of my shitty
1: minute. Yeah, it does seem like there's kind of a cycle to this, right, where a Republican holds office, a uh, majority of the country— strongly dislikes them um is sort of empowered and energized by that dislike right since it's so um intense and ingrained and that builds up the energy needed to elect a democrat uh there's all this energy and positive momentum and optimism about the democrat they get elected they serve for a year to a year and a half all the while Um, basically nothing happens, but everyone's still on the, like, yeah, but it's happening. Like it's, it just takes time. And then the two year mark hits. the midterms are a disaster because nothing's happened. And then everyone gets malaise for two years before the Republican is elected again. Um, and maybe that, you know, something comes in that they get, the Democrat squeaks by in the second term. And then the, the malaise just lasts for six years instead of two or whatever. Mm. Um, but that's happening now. And like, you can see. That and all the there's all the hubbub online about the fact that uh, the 18 to 35 or whatever demographic has just completely left Biden. Huge drop since wow. the election in a pretty short amount of time, uh, like 15, 20 percentage points. I can't remember exactly, but it's it's a lot in just a year and a half, you know, and uh, um and then all these people being like, I wonder why this is happening. This is so strange. What an interesting phenomenon. Um, meanwhile, like, you know, <laughs> gestures broadly at the world. Uh, and this fate of young people. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he's not going to run, though, dude. Like, no, I, I'm totally on board with you on the let's just like let's just countenance things because <laughs> we need some energy and we need to, like, imagine different futures. Like, yeah, totally on board with <laughs> yeah. that. But like, he's threatening. He's, he's threatening so that he can get some concessions, you know, like young people listen to Bernie and care about Bernie and they clearly are leaving Biden. So Bernie's got some leverage that he can swing. And Bernie's always been one to do that. He's always been one to make threats to the Democratic establishment so that he can get some leverage and get you know a voice in the room when it comes to some of this stuff. So I mean, I'm ninety-eight percent sure that's all that this is. I don't think he's going to actually try to primary or whatever Biden or Harris. But uh, yeah, nothing wrong with a little little gamesmanship. He's got some leverage. That's right. He's got he's
0: got some spunk in him for uh, an eighty-year-old. Like. When I'm 80, I hope that I that I still care about shit, you know? And that I'm not just yelling at young people for being around my lawn or something like that, you know? Well, well yeah, also,
1: like, people telling uh, Bernie to go and enjoy his retirement. Like, <laughs> this is what he would do in retirement. He'd just go to union meetings. That's all he would do. <laughs> so he's not doing yeah. anything different than he
0: would do if he was retired. Exactly. Exactly. I wonder. I wonder what he would be doing. Like... Because, you know, like the, the typical, like the way that I view it is like someone goes into politics for, you know, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, even if they're a lifer, you know, uh, they go in and their, quote, retirement is basically just like hobnobbing with like uh, other elites. Right. And they start a foundation, you know, like the mm-hmm. fucking uh, Diane Feinstein Foundation. I'm sure she has multiple foundations. Right. And so she just goes to fancy <laughs> dinners and uh, she probably, you know, they're like very expensive plates and things like that. And they're raising money for causes and everyone gets all dressed up really nice. And maybe they fund a documentary about, you know, some sort of like, uh, you know, fucking some sort of like California a Harvey Milk documentary, you know, and they do stuff like that. That's like that's what like Diane Feinstein would do in retirement. What would Bernie do in retirement? You know, like.
1: He would he would just go to union meetings. That's what he does now. Yeah, <laughs> that's all he yeah, would
0: do. I do one. Und- yeah, exactly. So he'd like I read Roberts' it. rules
1: at at the opening of a meeting. That's that's what he would do anyway.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jesus. See, this is the thing that I think is interesting, though. At least I know so many people were shitting on like Bernie Bros and stuff like that, and a lot of that was obviously just you know a red herring. But. um One of the things that's interesting, at least Bernie gives us something interesting to talk about, you know, like when people I mean, I know that there are other angles that when like when you talk about Kamala Harris, right? Like there's obviously like representation issues and things like that, that that are important to discuss. But like do people like and I don't know, but are people like is there like I feel like it's very serious, though. You know what I mean? And I'm not saying the politics isn't serious, blah, blah, blah. But I feel like there's. You can have, like, a little bit of joy. There's, like, this joy that I think came from the Bernie campaign. There's something – there's, like, an extra uh, – that that kind of, like, shook things up a little bit. Like, it created a little, like, oscillation that that typical political discussions just don't have. Like, no one is sitting around talking about Biden. And, like, playfully being like, what's it going to be like when Biden retires? Like, no one gives a shit, you know? He's like (laughs) – like, the whole Uncle Joe thing, that disappeared a decade ago. Like, no one thinks of him as cool Uncle Joe who rides a motorcycle and smokes a cigarette and wants to punch Trump or something like that. Like, there was a moment – but remember even when he said that he was going to, like, knock Trump out? Remember how offended everybody was? Like, they couldn't even, like, it it couldn't even for a moment be like, ha ha, that's kind of funny. Like, maybe a little bit online, because online anything can be injected with levity. But I mean, like, with, like, serious political discussion. But you can talk about Bernie, like, and you can act, like, like I feel like it it just doesn't have the same energy to just be co-opted by, like, the boring political blahness that is is so standard, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, is it as simple as, like... People know that Bernie himself is motivated and energized by an ideological vision. And obviously, the Democratic establishment from Biden to Harris to Buttigieg to whomever is they're all just cogs in a machine who clearly serve corporate interests. And you'd have to put a gun to their head to make them do anything good for the world. Um, And it's pretty hard. Even if you think that that's better, it's pretty hard to get motivated to care about that.
0: Yeah, it's like, well, it's 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 like dealing with an abstraction versus dealing with, you know, a human, you know, in all of its variances and that there's something about joy that can come from that and anger that can come from that. You know, like you can still be fucking serious. Like Bernie is not a joker himself. So I'm not saying that he somehow is like cracking jokes all the time, Um, although when he does crack jokes, it's funny. Um, because a lot of times the person that's interviewing him or that he cracks a joke with like doesn't get it and he just has this smile (laughs) on his face and you're like, okay. Um, but yeah, no, there is, there's, there's like a little bit more like a humanity about his concerns and about maybe it's just his quote authenticity. And so what that does is that just kind of like sparks, sparks that in other people. It's contagious. It's infectious, you know, whereas, yeah, I mean,
1: it's, it's, yeah, it's one of the reasons also why people people's report a um liking for trump they talk about things like authenticity and i think that they're extremely right, right. wrong about that <laughs> but um the fact that that's what they find to be different between he and even other republicans is striking right because there's a there's a disease that permeates the political elite class um that's very distasteful to basically everybody right except mm-hmm. for like your uh Like politics poisoned NPR listener who like enjoys technocratic nonsense, right? Um, And even they, I don't think really honestly care about that. It's more like they're trying to they're trying to like reflectively like it because it's the Mm -hmm. only thing that they got. Uh, There's a whole other whole discussion to have there, but um, yeah, that 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 should clue us into the fact that it's not like populism or some weird uh, ideological category like that. That's the commonality between like a burning in a Trump that's that's kind of a stupid analysis i think um it's a basic just like this is very different than the like communicative disease that permeates the political class and that's a very very thin thing that they share but it is something that they mm. share it'd um, be interesting um, to do a little st-
0: to do a study on on like how it is that authenticity is somehow translate or like relates to um Like just that the person is just saying what they wish they could say, you know, and how that's viewed as authentic. Like, yeah, like Trump is clearly not authentic. The guy's just he's just a fucking gamesman, you know, Um, but it comes across as, quote, authentic. Even if it doesn't come across as authentic, it's it's somehow like post facto recoded as being authentic because he's a mouthpiece for um, these desires or a mouthpiece for. Um, these resentments or something like that. It'd be interesting to kind of like look at that relationship between authenticity and like, I don't know, resentment or something or, or uh, authentic expression of resentment or something like that, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I've told you before that I want to write a, like an essay or a book called against authenticity. Um, oh yeah. For various, for various reasons. So I think it's like the virtue that's celebrated the most in contemporary culture. And it's, I don't even think, I think it's barely a virtue. And even Mm. if it is, it's other virtues that are doing the work whenever we see authenticity as a virtue and not authenticity itself. That's kind of my Mm. thesis. Um, but anyway, the point there being like, when we see authenticity in both a Bernie and a Trump, the problem with that being a shared virtue between them is that it's not even a virtue. First of all, (laughs) um, Mm. And so when we view it as a virtue, we end up mistaking something like just sounding different than the, common, um, the commonly normed discourse gets coded as authentic, even when it's clearly not even authentic, like in the case of Trump. And then even in the case of Bernie, in a sense, it is authentic because it, it actually connects with, with his actual like, mature, reflective beliefs about the world, right? But those aren't in any way like unique or original right? Um, and if they are, that's not, that's not why they're good. (laughs) Mm. Um, so yeah, I think, I think this privileging of authenticity plays a part in, um, in a lot of the, the discourse around why people hate politicians and it's, it's so problematic and I think not dealt with at a a theoretically deep enough level. Uh, and it'd be interesting, I think, to, to talk about that. Both in like philosophy, uh, generally speaking, from like the, you know, like Heidegger early Sartre vein, but then also in the way we talk about it in popular culture.
0: Well, I think that that sounds like a future uh, Atlantic article and potentially popular philosophy publication. What do you
1: think, uh, Troy? Yeah, yeah, I think one day I'll probably write that paper and then we'll talk about it on this podcast yeah. in 2029. Oh, dude, what are you going to do when you retire?
0: Uh, I'm going to keep doing this podcast. That's what I'm going to be
1: doing. I, I hope that we have Owls at Dawn through episode 3000. <laughs> and we're, and oh, we're yeah. talking about how, like, as we're, as we're sinking into the, like, Atlantic Ocean or whatever, um, <laughs> we're still doing this podcast. That would be amazing. Yeah. Uh, if I saw yeah. into the future and everything was as disastrous as we expected to be, but yeah. I'm still making this podcast with you, I'd be like, eh, I'll take it yeah dude honestly
0: i agree i agree i fucking agree yeah okay so the goal is three thousand. i mean at least right okay well we're on um we're on 166 today so uh we got a ways to go but let's kick the tires can, can you believe fires- we're at
1: 166 though I if you had told us in 2015 or whenever it was we started this that we would get through 166 episodes that would be pretty you'd be pretty impressed right 100 I
0: I literally thought we would do this for like I thought we were going to do it for like a couple months and it'd be just like this thing that we did. <laughs> <laughs> Oh shit I know I know I know Uh oh. All right um let's talk about jerkitude jerk jer, jerk jerkiness um so let's just do like a brief summary of um how do you say his name Schwitz Gable Schweitz Schweitz Gable yes. Schvitzgabel or Schweitzgabel, I'm not really sure which. Let's t- um, do a quick summary of his argument. Um, will, you, will you take the lead on that?
1: Yeah, so it's a short article, really easy to read.
0: Yeah, um, it's great. The, These are the kind the of central- things... No one should ever write a 400-page book again. We've done it enough, okay? (laughs) Go read fucking Hegel. Go read Dostoevsky. No one needs to make anything over. Books now should be 200 pages or under. That's it. I have decided. Articles should be fewer than 10 minutes, you know? Unless it's like an essay and it's like this sustained thing because then I categorize that as not being an article. Ain't nobody got time for 17-minute fucking think pieces, okay? Like (laughs) if it's substantial and I know it's substantial, put like – there should be a public – you know what? There should be publications that only do – they should do it by length now, not by topic or by prestige or by ideological persuasion. By time and by length now, like – publication a does 10 minute and under reads cool publication b does 11 to 20 minute publication c does 21 minute to 40 minute ones you know but like this is perfect like this is good this was and this was like i was laying in bed reading it and it was kind of enjoyable and fun and i had like a couple little like huh to myself you know yeah i like that kind of stuff
1: okay sorry yeah i mean (laughs) no i i think you're right about that i i do think that there's something one of the the Virtues that analytic philosophy has over continental philosophy is the is the the way that um, the form sort of foregrounds the essay, and I really yeah. appreciate that. I think that philosophical essay is like the best form of, of written philosophy that there is. Um, and maybe the the corollary of that is like a popular philosophical essay should be about this long, right? Just like here's a yeah. problem in two paragraphs. Here's a thesis about that problem. And here's some things we can do with that in like four more paragraphs. And yeah. then we're
0: done. <laughs> Otherwise, it's too much, bro. I'm going through, and I'm, i was just telling Troy off air. I'm going through and I'm basically reading through like, like all of these notes, right? And I'm reading, and I'm reading Baudrillard's The Mirror of Production, for example. There's too much in that one book. I could literally spend a week, two weeks, three. I could, I mean, I could actually spend a fucking year. just going through one of these texts and like one for he like has this phrase on page 145 that I'm like oh my god what does that's a like I need to think about that and I need to connect that to this and connect it to that and that connects to this and that one phrase could inspire weeks of thought but yet I have more pages to get to and so I can't just ponder there's too much man there's too much I'm gonna start just writing like Byung Chul Han length books that are 45 pages and it's a fucking, it's a book. Okay. (laughs) And I'm going to fucking publish that shit. And if you're a publisher out there and you're interested in this, I got ideas. I got lots of endless ideas and I'm going to start doing that shit because at least then you have a a start and an end and you're like, Oh, I can remember stuff. There's a simple idea to take away from it and you can go. It's just not just too much. There's just too much. Otherwise academia is diseased by too much.
1: Yeah. Something about spending 25 hours on on a single idea from a single author is like, that's, you're asking too much, man. Like, I know you, you've, you, you're, you have devoted years of your life to this, but that shouldn't mean I have to devote 25 hours to it. If I'm going to really like stick it all in. That's the other thing, like
0: how much – I think I've said this before, but I, it feels like such disrespect to these texts that these people they, <laughs> – they've labored over the culmination of years of research and I consume it in a day because I'm just trying to pull out the parts that are relevant for my research, you know? Like, yeah.
1: It's, it so, feels very wrong to do that, yeah. It's so wrong. Gosh. Uh. Oh, anyway. Great. Wonderful, okay. wonderful wonderful form of this article. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so here's the central problem of the COVID jerk. Uh, Gable says, the classic COVID jerk still thrives, but because highly effective vaccines have been available for a long while, and as the Omicron wave subsides, reasonable people will disagree about what now constitutes a jerk move. The boundaries of responsible behavior are less clear than they once were. So I'm wondering, this rings very true to me. And I was wondering what your experience has been like, because the experience here, especially in a university, is where I spend most of my time, like outside of my home, right? Yeah. Um, there's lots of weird, you walk into a room and you're not sure, you have your mask in your back pocket or in your backpack, because you always have it with you, and you're not sure if you need to put it on. So you look around and try to see what other people are doing and then decide what to do. And there's something both right and wrong about that. Like in my mind, the, as like a prima fascia um, sort of reaction, right? It seems like, well, yeah, I kind of want to respect other people. That's not a bad thing, right? I want to respect their wishes and I care about what they think. So I'm not being a jerk by caring about what they think. I'm being the sweetheart, as Church says, which is the opposite of the jerk. Which right? I like,
0: by the way, when I first read it, I was like, oh, that's a little saccharine. And then I was kind of like, I kind of want to write a philosophical essay in which I use the word sweetheart.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That must—I bet you he was at a a pub and was just like, "I I dare you!" Someone was like, "Eric, I dare you to write the word sweetheart as a technical term in a philosophical paper." He's like, he's like, and so like, you give me twenty bucks, okay, I'll do it. (laughs) It's very, it's very cute, and I'm very into it, you know. So. Yeah, I'm not sure the sweetheart would be the opposite of the jerk, but but I'll roll with it. It's a technical. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, yeah, uh, we stipulate it at this point, so we can do whatever you want. And it feels in philosophy, you can stipulate anything you want, and then just go I love from it. There. Um, so that seems right and okay, at least prima mm. fascia, right? O- other things being equal and stuff. Um, but then also it seems kind of wrong, right? Because it seems like the things you do around ra- surrounding like public health and people's safety and livelihood shouldn't primarily be based upon um sort of interpretations of other people's subjective states. Yes. <laughs> They're very uncertain, right? That seems like an inappropriate uh as like a fundamental reason for making a decision based upon public health, right? We should have a better way of determining these things and in most other areas we do have better ways of determining that. So this is like a unique experience around masks and all that. So that rings really true to me. This weirdness about where are the norms? We don't know what being responsible looks like in this atmosphere. Does that ring true to you, too? I, I, what, re- yes, what really
0: gets me is I actually got a little bit, I almost like felt an anxiety at the thought of advocating for a moral position that is so. ...submissive to other people's emotional and intellectual needs that it made me be like, I'm wondering why. And I've been doing a lot of just like, you know, my own self-exploration and kind of like looking into um, um, like psychotherapy and stuff like that. And I'm very interested in that as like a side hobby, I guess you would say. Um, You know, obviously I've I've seen a therapist in in the past and I've done like embodiment work and stuff like that. And there's this, there's this, hold on, there's some really loud noise outside. I think it's like a fucking huge frog. Um anyway, um <laughs> there's there's this book by this guy named Robert Glover. It's called No More Mr. Nice Guy. And I don't like the title of the book because it makes it seem like it's some like, you know, like MGTOW, like men's rights activist kind of thing, but it's not. What he's essentially diagnosing is also what's called like histrionic personality disorder, which is he calls it the nice guy uh, the nice guy disorder or um uh, the nice guy problem. Um but essentially it's it's um People who – and he he talks about men because he typically works with men, but it's not just that. But it's people who um, they have really unhealthy attachments to parental figures in their formative years and they end up becoming such people pleasers. That they um, never learn, one, how to express their own needs or their desires. Not just self-assertion, not just that, but also like that I have needs. So what they do is they sub- they they repress their needs or they suppress their own desires. And um, they end up building resentments over the years because they're constantly trying to serve other people. Because they think by serving other people, um, a covert contract is made where their needs will be met kind of incidentally. But they're never met the way that they are needed to be met because the person can never express, "Hey, I need this," or you know, "It'd be wonderful if I could get this." You know, and then this is also where principles of like nonviolent communication come in. You don't just like fucking say, "I need you to fucking do." Th-. No, it's more like, "Hey, you know, like if if you do this, um, it it would make me feel this," or "When you do this, I feel this way." You know, like there are obviously ways of navigating this and ways of comporting yourself that are much more like reciprocal and healthy rather than like self-assertion stuff. But what happens with this like histrionic personality disorder or with you know the kind of like the nice guy syndrome is that you become so resentful that you actually become mean and so his his kind of the twist is that the nice guy isn't actually nice but the nice guy is actually really mean because there's a difference between being nice for him and being kind for him and so when i'm looking at this article one of the things i did wonder is and i'm not saying that he's that eric schweitz gable um that eric schweitz um was is advocating this but i do wonder if we're so concerned about like other people's intellectual and emotional well-beings uh, or, or, or uh, affecting them, like how, how then do we navigate that sticky space between, like, yes, we need to be aware of other people and respect other people, and I would say care for other people's emotional, intellectual well-being, while at the same time not falling into that other ditch, which is you, which I think is a, a big, a, a, a big symptom of a lot of our culture today. Like, I'm, I would say, I'm in a lot of ways a recovering nice guy. You know, like I think that that's something that I, you know, I I have my own attachment issues with my family that I think has come out with me being like, okay, I'm gonna be a people pleaser to overcompensate for the fact that I might not have my own self-worth and therefore I'm going to get my self-worth from others, you know, from praise of other people or from love of other people or like physical attention from other people. That's why I got into fucking acting probably, right? So that people will heap praise upon me or so that I can entertain people and they can come up to me and be like, oh my God, you made me so happy or whatever the fuck it is, right? Like, so there's something about that that maybe isn't healthy, but that it's also not necessarily disqualifying. So I know that this is kind of like a, a really complicated way here of, of kind of like looking through this but I do wonder like how can we one be respectful of other people but at the same time not fall into that like possible resentful like um, I'm always trying to measure myself against other people's expectations which I do see as being a fallout of the covid pandemic is so many people are like they be one you get people who are like bootlickers that are like, oh, my God, let's just love the regulation. And then they become the policemen who are policing other people because they're so good because they care so much about other people. So that's one effect of it. But then other people who become frozen in like a paralysis of, I don't know what to do because I'm so scared that if I do this, I'm going to offend somebody else or I might hurt somebody else. And so they become frozen and they become – they maybe internalize that as a shame or a guilt. And then if they do one thing, they're like, oh my god, did I accidentally do this thing that hurt somebody else? And they're ah, like, oh, I feel so bad. And so then they start self-disciplining themselves because they're so submitted to the fucking power of the other that they've like fantasized in their own mind. So these – these are the things that I'm kind of working through when I read this article. That's the thing that jumped out
1: most to me. Yeah. So I, I'm really glad you took it down this road because this is where I wanted to take it to. And oh, I cool. think
0: um, that, happens, that happens
1: so much, man, we're definitely going to get to 3000,
0: you know, <laughs>
1: <laughs> we're going to have some man of episode, uh, and 17, uh, episode 1796, where we just have a falling out and it never gets repaired. Uh, I'm going to say something negative about Deleuze and then you're never going to forgive me. It's going to be horrible. Yeah. Um, our grandkids will have to reconcile us by making us meet at a restaurant when we thought we were meeting the grandkids instead. Oh, but and then it's going it, to be, it'll be a fucking drama, Mandarin yeah. Wong. And they're going to they're going to surprise that, us. That we- would do it. And then we'll go play basketball
0: and both break our legs because we're so old. And I'll be so blind by then that even my laser eye corrective <laughs> surgery will have reversed. And it does. Yeah. And I'm going to be so mad. Yeah, exactly.
1: You'll probably be the most like in shape. 75 year old dude though at the park. So. <laughs> Your, my leg will break because I'm old. Yours will break because like, I'm i can going trip too you hard or do some Drayvon Green <laughs> shit on you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you mentioned uh, I forget the author's name who made the distinction between uh, kindness and niceness. Yeah, Robert Glover. Um, any relation to to Donald? Um, uh, no, I know. Or Danny? No. Um, so I actually have a thesis about. This and maybe someone's already taken it, and I'm gonna be really upset if that's the case. Mm. But my, my thesis about the distinction between kindness and niceness is that niceness is um, sensitivity to norms, and kindness is sensitivity to individuals, okay? Um, or sensitivity to the value of individuals, whereas niceness is the sensitivity to the value of norms. Ooh. Um, so What's important about mm. the distinction is then, and this comes out, I think, in all the things you just described, where there's the, the individual, we all know this individual, right? who's um, Who acts like they love humanity, but their actions have no kindness towards individual humans. It's more about norms surrounding actions, right?
0: Mm. And
1: so what they really love are the norms and not the individuals who the norms affect. And so that's an important distinction, I, I think, because... Uh, kindness is what we want. That's the virtue. Niceness is not necessarily a virtue. It could be, or could not be depending upon circumstance. Right. But the real key is, um, it seems to me like in development, like in moral development for individuals, probably, um, when it comes to like socialization, at least maybe not entirely, but at least partially niceness comes first, we teach kids mm. how to obey certain norms around how to, um, how to socialize right in various avenues, and then they slowly begin to appreciate individuals when they are appreciated back. And like that is a reciprocal thing. Right. And that usually happens in the family. First of all, where the parents unconditionally love the child until so the child learns to love them back, um, reciprocally. Right. Um, but in, in social, like the social sphere, it seems like maybe niceness and, and sensitivity to norms comes first. And so yeah. it's easy to to short circuit that process and never go from niceness to kindness or never like use the niceness to transition into kindness as your motivation, which is the real virtuous thing, right? And so when you have a diseased society, oftentimes that like a morally diseased society that comes out as people are nice and they're not kind <laughs> mm. right yeah and so that just seems like a problem i think it's endemic in
0: america i'm just spitballing here too but it seems that maybe a lot of times niceness is couched as being like a um a refusal of your own needs in because this is what we do right like like you're you're a little kid and it's like well now now johnny we don't hit because that's not nice, right? Rather than I don't I don't know. So it's like a superego, super ego a superego imposition, right? That a person is is confronting and um and I, and what I wonder is what would be an alternative form of instruction or education there? Like how could we. Recognize the the need that little Johnny has to express his fucking bam inner Bam Bam or something like that. <laughs> um, but while also being like, hey, when you hit when you hit Joey, like that hurts, right? Rather than like maybe uh, that's. The, the- Maybe that's it. Maybe it's that empathy. It's hey, when you hit Joey, it hurts, and 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 we shouldn't, we should, tr- and we don't want to hurt people. Rather than we don't do that because it's the rules to not do it, or because it's not nice to do it, or because because to be a good little boy, you don't hit, right? Which is like a, a, a just manufacturing for pathology.
1: Yeah, and what's the what's the reason? Any sort of. Um I don't want to say philosophically educated, but like anybody who, who wants to provide an actual like quasi philosophical reason for Johnny not to hit Joey. What's the reason that they go to always? It's not nice. Well, it's not nice, but how is that couched? Like in a semi philosophical way. Oh, the, to get them do to what, think. the golden rule. Yeah. Right. It's how would you feel if Joey yeah. hit you? Right. Which is the problem with that isn't necessarily that it's wrong. Because it is a, a way of like getting into the philosophical sphere, right? And it's a way of thinking objectively about yourself, right? And you yourself as a, not just the subject, but the object and situation. That's not, that's not a bad thing. But when that's the end of this, the story, it's purely like narcissistic, right? It's purely only about the value of of the me, which is already like kids will have a problem with that usually, yeah, sometimes, but not usually, especially little kids, um, So you got to transition to like, yeah, maybe just basically it hurts Joey. What do you think about that? Right. Or um, um, how do you think Joey feels like explore uh, them thinking about the inner workings of Joey's mind? Because that's not necessarily something that kids automatically think of without being prompted. And, And then maybe also
0: not have it be just like such a negative, like a like a you have a desire, but your desire is wrong because of the rule. But maybe you can also then be like, there's a way to productively take that desire, which is some sort of desire for attention or expression or connection or something, right? There's a lot going on there in that activity. And then be like, hey, instead of doing that, Let's go over and let's see what Johnny wants, Joey wants to do with you. Or there's like a way to some, I'm trying to think there's a way to make it so that it's not just purely a negative disciplinary form Mm. of power imposition, right? But there's a way to turn it into a constructive world building, like a positive kind of world
1: building activity, you know? Yeah. It's not just like, here's the existing norm. Obey it. right? Right. 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 It's rather it's rather like get them to the point where they see the value in the norm and hopefully through that the value of the person affected by the norm. And so that's why the norm is important in the first place, because the person is affects is important or matters. Right. So, like, you know, Johnny, um, how do you think Joey feels about this or why did you do that? I think would probably be a really good question to ask, first of all. Right. Let them Mm. explain themselves. Don't judge maybe mm. point out if yeah. the reason is like, well he took it, right? And it's mine. Mm. That's not and it's we gotta find like what's the thing of value that caused them to do this wrong thing. And well, that's and a pretty under, important point of thinking.
0: And there's a rational, there's a rational logic that is probably there, no matter how latent or nascent it oh, might yeah. be,
1: understand there's a value there. That exactly. Yeah. There's a there's a value in there that's good. Mm. All wrong actions, insofar as they're they're rational. They're not, you know, like like uh, exclamatory things or whatever, insofar as they're in any way intentional or rational, there's a value the person sees, even Mm. in the most wrong of possible actions. And so trying to find that is important, not for excusing the behavior, but for understanding it. Like, why did this person do what they did? Even something like, Joey stole my toy. Well, okay, we understand that we have things that we like that bring us happiness and joy, (laughs) and that's a good thing. And to lose those things would be very sad. Right? That's good. Okay. Well, how do you think Joey feels about that? And maybe, you know, Johnny gets to the point where he's like, well, given that the toy brings so much joy, I guess I see why Joey wanted it too. And that would be like, that would be the eureka moment of like getting it. Right? Now he's seeing Joey as someone who matters just like he matters. Mm. Now Johnny's going to write moral philosophy for the rest of his life. Yeah,
0: exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, how do we? How can we tie this? in, you think into um, this this COVID jerk article? Because so for me, I guess my my concern is maybe because we're so socialized into the regime of niceness. With all of the super ego injunctions that come with it, Zizek talks about the super ego injunction is the injunction to enjoy. You must enjoy. But the problem is, is the more innocent you are to that injunction, the more guilty you are, which leads to this like repetition, right? Like the Mm -hmm. more piety, the more intention, um, the more attention you give to whatever the super ego particular uh, expression of it is the more it becomes a sort of taskmaster that you have to live under. It's like a, a plume of smoke that that just keeps building over a fire that is burning, right? And it gets bigger and bigger, and the shadow that it casts and this, the effects that it has over you are larger and larger. But then you just have to keep serving it more and more, and it's, uh, it's like this exponentially expanding uh, power, if you will. So how do we think of that in relation – Is if we've got this regime of niceness that is maybe even stifling at times – um, some people take it on and they wear it as a badge of honor because they can be like the good faithful servant of the, the master. Right. Those are the ones who are like, oh, look at me. I'm such a good obeyer of the rules. Right. Which becomes an, a, a point for identity formation for some people. Um, and then other people who become like paralyzed before it. Right. Like, what do we think about how we can we can look at our social responsibilities as being socialized in a regime of niceness as adults trying to build a society for the better while also then being like, yeah, but we should be kind to people. Right. Like, how do we how do we shift maybe from the effects of the regime of niceness into maybe a a construction of a of a community of kindness? Well,
1: let's. Let's pause that for a sec, because that, that's a threat on one side, right? Is the regime of niceness thing, where niceness crowds out kindness. And because it looks somewhat similar on the surface, um, it becomes a, a supplement for the thing we actually want, right? Um, that's on one side. The other side is the the jerkitude side, right? Yeah. And like a being a, a community of jerks or something. Um, and Gable, his thesis, he says, is that Jerks are people who culpably fail to appreciate the intellectual and emotional perspectives of others around them, right? Um, and I think that's that's good, right? And it, it kind of dovetails what we're talking about with Johnny a minute ago, um, trying to get Johnny to the point where he can appreciate the inner subjective state of other individuals. Like that's a, a skill you have to develop because it's not necessarily obvious, yeah. um, especially if you're a child and some people never get past that point in, like psychological development where they can where they like do that often they have to be prompted to do it uh, if at all like narcissists obviously um so my worry about that and maybe we, maybe this will transition to this this uh, this worry about the regime of niceness is like i guess i have twin worries about thinking about jerks this way cuz the basic thesis i think for fish uh, Gable is like here's how not to be a jerk then like form virtues such that you appreciate intellectual and emotional perspectives of of others, right? Don't be a jerk. Uh, That's good. But I guess I have two worries. One is in in specific problematic cases like mask wearing, which is heavily politicized, right? Um, A lot of the jerkitude doesn't necessarily come from um, this kind of like psychological lack of development or something, um, or maybe lack of moral development. But it's actually people correctly interpreting what mask wearing actually is in practice, even if it ought not be this way. And that is a sign of political expression, mm. right? Um, like they're not wrong if they walk into a room full of mask wearers and determine this. These are a bunch of like pussy Democrats. <laughs> um <laughs> Like they wouldn't necessarily be wrong about that and that may even not even not only like accidentally right but even like that's the main motivation for what's mm. happening here uh is to, is to signal political identity to people uh, i hope that's not the case but it sometimes is um and then additionally like there's this other fact of um the the real key there isn't that they're wrong about interpreting this phenomenon this this new norm or this changing norm as a political signal it's that they don't realize the injustice of that fact. Like, it ought not be like this. It ought not be that your main motivation for, for public health concerns is political signals, right? Hmm. You can't help that because that just happens to be the way that the norm works right now. Um, but it ought not be that way. And you have to realize the injustice. like guess the key point, right? Like, it should be about public health. That should be the thing. Like, you care about other people and you want to protect them, Right? And, you're in a, and you want to be in a society where the people do the same for you. Like, that's what, what matters. Um, but my my worry, I guess, is like, that's, that expects a lot of people. Like, that expects people to be philosophers, kind of. Yeah. To, to think about norms in an abstract way such that they can judge which norms are, are more just than others. And I guess we all do that to some degree. So that's fair. But at this level, it seems like you're kind of expecting everybody to be a philosopher. And that seems like a bad idea. And that seems like well, what gets people to say dumb shit on Twitter. <laughs> um, that seems philosophical, but is actually pretty inane, right? Or, or is it just asking people
0: to kind of do some self-examination? I don't know that you necessarily have to be... You have the time to do philosophical reflection in order to make the type of distinctions that you're that you're highlighting that would be so prudent to coming to a more robust understanding. But I think that that like even doing some self-reflection and understanding yourself and it's kind of like going back to what I was talking about, like with with this this psychotherapy of this guy, Robert Glover, who's talking about this, you know, histrionic personality disorder um, or the nice guy syndrome, you know, like he he recounts all of these these um, st- uh, these um, experiences that he's had in like men's groups, or or dealing with with patients over the years, and these guys who have been like, oh shit, like. I guess part of the reason that I'm this way is that you know my dad left and my mom was so awesome but as a kid I was like how could my dad leave because my mom's so awesome so it must have been my fault so my dad left because of me so I must suck so therefore I'm going to overcompensate that by constantly seeking approval from everyone so that I can get the validation that I never got because it couldn't have been my mom rather than being like well actually guess what sometimes parents just don't get along and it had nothing to do with you but you were a fucking three or four year old and you didn't understand that so you internalized it that he must left because of you and so now you have pathologized this right like that kind of thing that kind of um exploration can give you a sort of broader perspective on things without you having to be like or, or have the time to be a philosopher I mean it still takes time I guess and you you can't be burdened by just like the constant pressures of of a society that that is inducing you to produce all the time but stuff like that is is not outside the realm of what I think we could expect of of people and maybe what we ought to expect of people, you know?
1: Like, do you think it is? Am I asking too much? Like, do people just not have time to do self-exploration? No, not not self-reflection. I think that's totally fair, even though it is hard. And I think it would be a lot to expect everybody to, to sort of succeed at that um, at a certain point. Like, that's probably a lifelong pursuit, right? But I, I guess I'm talking more here about the, the, the social norm, right? That's the thing where it seems like a failure of a society, if it's expecting individuals to take on, um, the take on the task of developing social norms for themselves, (laughs) right? It's just like, it's not the kind of thing individuals can do ad hoc on the fly. Um, and so, I mean, it's a, it's a collective action problem, right? Yeah. When do you wear masks? Well, it's not 100% sure we can't exactly dictate when you should and shouldn't. So we need to have some existing norms that are fair and that keep people safe, that don't overly burden everybody, and that people can follow and not have to worry if, about whether or not they're being responsible or not, as long as they kind of do what it generally thought to be like responsible and safe. Which we do in all sorts of other areas, and we're fine with even though there's dangers to it. Right? Um, like driving the speed limit. Like everyone knows driving is super dangerous. Maybe that's a bad example because I think driving is like the worst thing we do in society. <laughs> 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 but uh <laughs> I mean, if you were to take an example like that, there's all sorts of other examples too, right? Where like we we accept a certain amount of danger, but because we think that there's, I guess, some just outcome, then we're kind of okay with it. Um and mass scoring just isn't that yet because we don't have these norms. And so a failed society just puts it on individuals to figure it out for themselves and that's like not how you solve collective action problems obviously yeah. that's how you fail at collective action problems um, and this is a moral collective action problem because it's about sharing burdens with each other um, and caring for each other and that's something we need to figure out how to do together and we live in a society that never ever wants to do anything collective <laughs> if it can yeah. avoid it um, and that seems like I, Too much to put on individuals to figure out a collective norm for themselves that is responsible, that respects other people and respects themselves, um, let alone getting other people to buy into it. Right.
0: Yeah. And I guess this I mean, to kind of almost backtrack what I just said a minute ago too. like one of the things about the definition here that he says is he says jerks culpably fail. To appreciate the perspectives of others around them and he italicizes culpably which then makes me think okay so the word culpably is doing a lot of lifting there and it makes me wonder if he's not if he's not leaning too heavily into this sort of like um responsabilization of the individual to have already done all of this work or to yeah. always already be be doing this kind of work and I guess that that would kind of like tie into what I just said a minute ago where I'm like, shoot, like people can do it again. That's kind of like even I was kind of advocating for a sort of like a responsabilization of your own um, of your own um, affect. Right. Which which I don't think we should completely ignore, but that can't be the cure all for this collective moral issue.
1: You know? Yeah, exactly. Like there's. Obviously, there's, there are COVID jerks who are who are culpable, who are just being assholes, um, and we have like a a way of considering assholery that makes sense of that, right? But there's yeah. also like a frustration about in a, a burgeoning norm that where the work hasn't really been done by the appropriate institutions to develop practices that people find responsible and reasonable, and when the appropriate institutions in society either don't do that or don't even exist in the first place to do that. Uh, Or don't have trust from the society itself. All all of which seems to be the case in in America, right? Um, Then frustration of that stuff isn't because you're a jerk necessarily. It's in large part because, like, it's not your job to do all this stuff, or at least it's not your job by yourself to do all this stuff. Yeah. So um, it's not just about a psychological lacking a psychological capacity to appreciate. The intellectual and emotional perspectives of others, it might be no. I fully appreciate that stuff, but that doesn't, doesn't tell me what to do, <laughs> right? Hmm. Doesn't tell me what to do. Doesn't tell anyone else what to do. It doesn't tell me what actually constitutes respecting them. Um, so, it leaves you a bit like empty, like practically empty, and and left to look at other people's faces when you enter a room and try and guess what they're thinking, and that's just not a good way of trying to navigate how to treat people. Yeah, especially for those of us out there that aren't great at that.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah, I I think one of the key one of the key sentences for me that I really do like um, in this article is he says it's the dismissive attitude towards others concerns that makes a covid jerk. And I think that's what's key. It's rather than so it isn't just pure submission to or subjection to the regime of niceness that makes the sweetheart, right? Um, Or that makes one kind. Or that would make someone not a jerk, right? Um, It's not just the pure that, but it's one, the kind of like recognition of other people's intellectual and emotional concerns, right? And the what what constitutes jerkitude is like an intentional awareness that those people are going to be harmed by this and then the conscious dismissal of it. Rather than I think what you were what you were getting at which is really interesting is even if it comes from like an unconscious awareness of hey there seems to be something funny going on here, right? Like like hmm something's off. Right. Like there is um, conflicting information, blah, 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 whatever, whatever it's coming from, even if it's not fully formulated, there's like a kind of like a sense that something's off. That's not what makes the jerkitude. It's the conscious like, okay, I sense that something's off. But you don't have that same sense that I have, so you have um, a concern. But you know what? Your concerns are invalid, and my sense of something is off is valid. That's what makes the jerkiness. And then you respond from the sort of like dismissal of the other person's possible validity of sensing something or feeling something or believing something. And when you dismiss that, it's a sort of in a way, it's a kind of – dehumanization that the other person might actually have some sort of real concerns that ought to be attended to right and so there is a sort of dehumanization maybe i mean maybe i'm being way too rhetorically fancy here or over overstating it but there does seem to be something like that where you're like no you you don't have valid thoughts or feelings or emotions i do um, I, I get that you think you have ideas, but your ideas are stupid, and maybe it's that position
1: that constitutes jerkiness. Yeah, I think that's that's right. Um, two things about that, though. Right, one is that happens. Just taking the American context, right? Like liberals do that to conservatives too. Yeah, right. Dismiss their their concerns as being, oh, you're just propagandized. You're a passive recipient. Yeah, of propaganda. and they're jerks. And so, that, that's yeah, and it's, that's that's super jerky. That's being a jerk. And then also you cannot be a jerk, right? You can fully appreciate the intellectual and emotional perspectives of others and have like a kindness motivation um inculcated in you and still not know what to do if your society sucks, right? <laughs> if the social institutions and practices in which you are a part uh are deficient. Yeah. And So that can happen even without being a jerk. So there's other things that need to happen other than just not being a jerk at the social level. Right. I guess. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely more complex and I don't think fish Gable was saying it was as simple as this, No, but it's easy to read it this way as like, you know, people who don't wear masks are jerks and everyone else is trying to do the right thing. Um, it's, it's much more complicated than that at both the individual level and at the social level.
0: Yeah. And what do you do? When you are social – like we might even say that if we're socialized under this regime of niceness, under that under that kind of superego structure, what options do you have? Like we're not talking about the situation now of of – what did I say? Tommy and Johnny where we can socialize them. This is different. Now we're talking about sort of like mass social activity where – things are snapped into action, we don't even have the time or the space to be able to consider alternatives. It's either comply or you're a jerk, right? Like, if if you are mm-hmm. stifled under that regime, really, what are the
1: options? Yeah, which is unfair to the person who's being called a jerk. They might actually be a jerk, but simply mm-hmm. being skeptical of a certain regime is not sufficient for being a jerk, right? Even by this thesis, being a jerk is a is a set of psychological capacities, right, or lack of capacities, Um, not a behavioral trait necessarily. The behavioral trait usually flows from the psychological capacities or lack thereof, right? But not necessarily.
0: You know what you do? You wear the fucking mask, but on your shirt you write, "Hey." I'm not a covid jerk. I just think there's something fishy going on, but I'm putting my mask on while I take the time to figure out a more proper course of action. And you write that. <laughs> that's a that's a lot to put on a shirt,
1: dude. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what do you say? I'm 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 wearing my mask because I'm trying to be kind, but we got to come up with something. That's still too much. I, what do we do? What do you? I'm trying to figure out how to protest while not being compliant but not being a jerk but at the same time respecting other people's emotional and intellectual needs.
1: But the problem is if you wore that shirt, wouldn't that be like instituting your own regime demanding obedience in like this indirect way?
0: Yeah, this reminds me of uh – Todd McGowan and Ryan Angley on why Theory, they, they talk about like being too cool for school. Like when you're too cool for school, you think like you're rejecting one symbolic order, but really you're just replacing it with another symbolic order. So, yeah. But well,
1: that's the, the whole thing about coolness, dude. I got to write an essay called Against Coolness also. because <laughs> Are you writing these coolness, down? Because these are great ideas. <laughs> yeah, no, th- th- this is definitely what I've thought about for a long time. Coolness is sort of, especially in like uh, mid 20th century American culture, right? Coolness is defined or constituted by lack of concern for um, social norms, kind of like that, right? Maybe it's more specific than that, but something like that. But yet, because you're you're so concerned about being not concerned, you are actually the most concerned about the social norms. (laughs) So coolness is itself an incoherent concept. I think. Yeah. It's like the whole,
0: like, uh, like trying hard to look like you didn't try hard, but when you like, like with the messy yeah. hairstyle or like, like when your fashion is hey. like, yeah, but you, <laughs> you are trying so hard to look like you're not trying that it probably consumes you,
1: you know? Yeah. It's, it's, you, you end up being the person who's most identified by, so you, 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 per, you put the most importance on these social norms. Like you're the most fetishizing of them, not the person who just kind of like, blandly follows the norms because it's simple or easy like that's the person who's actually cool if anybody is yeah yeah
0: um the last thing i want to say about this article is he does talk about like um his recommended pathway for principles of non-jerkitude which i think i mean we don't need to go too much into it because we kind of touched on i think most of them but the the principles that he says are one be open right so um just kind of like Talk about your VAC status, talk about what your needs are, respect other people, letting them know exactly what risks you bring in a situation, et cetera, et cetera, right? So just be open about everything that you can. And then the second one is adhere to rule and custom, which I find to be interesting because um, that kind of <laughs> goes into what we were talking about, like the the kind of like knife, the regime of niceness. So adhere to rule and yeah. custom. Like the Foucault the Foucaultian in me is like kicking and screaming at that, but um, It just just to at least say it. And then the last one is be willing to compromise, Um, which, again, uh, the I I feel the stifling pressure of the superego bearing upon me. But
1: um, well, that's the that's the thing, right, is all of that's fine advice. Right. But you literally can't do those things with every (laughs) room that you walk into. You can't do that. (laughs) It's just not possible. Um, Like with your close friends. Sure. You can you can do that. You should do that. Um, but you can't do that with everybody and every place you walk into, it's just impossible. So you're just left with like an empty practical syllogism where you just don't know, you just don't know what they're doing. So you kind of guess. And that's yeah. And not, then let me
0: ask, let me not ask not the you this. To be I want to write a, a, a response essay to this and be like, listen, all well and good when it comes to maybe certain issues, but I want to write an essay called in praise of being a jerk. Not a code <laughs> jerk, but under what situations is it good to be like, you know what? Fuck the rule in custom and fuck compromise. Like you wouldn't have a lot of these social movements we had if people were just adhering to rule and custom because they were trying so hard not to hurt other people's feelings or intellectual uh, intellectual states, right? Like sometimes well, you, well, you got to be a jerk.
1: Well, here's the thing, dude. That wouldn't be against being a, or it wouldn't be in favor of the jerk, because the jerk is someone who has a, a lack of certain psychological capacities. I think what you're saying is against niceness. Yeah. Like against following Again. norms simply because they are norms. So maybe the the, the problem with
0: what Schwitz Gable's article is erecting is that he is re- erecting a regime of niceness versus a regime of jerkitude. Whereas we're going to want to insert a third, which is a regime of kindness. Right? And that's different. Because I mean, yeah, I know, it's like, like the... The ethical commonwealth, or something, man. The regime of kindness. Yeah, what is what does Kant call it? Like uh,
1: unsocial sociality or asocial sociality? I was thinking of Kant calling it the ethical commonwealth and the religion. Where does he yeah, call yeah. it an asocial sociality? I don't remember that. Oh, Okay,
0: I, I'm trying to. It's Karatani's reading of Kant, so maybe I'm. It's like his, oh, okay. his Marx Marxian reading of of Kant. But um, wait, you didn't it, read
1: that book already? We're supposed to read that book together.
0: Well, I I well I only read bits of it. I read bits of it, but it came up it came up in um when I was reading his his other one on world the the structure of world history and uh and Daniel Tut was talking about it. So, and I just I listened to like a couple of his talks on like libidinal economy where he talks about
1: when he talks about adultery. I don't Karatani's. know, man. That sounds yeah. like adultery. <laughs> just you saying it was just a tip, that's not satisfactory, man. Ah, no. <laughs>
0: It was only emotional, I swear. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Okay. So let's go ahead and wrap this up. It's it's an interesting article. I love these types of articles because this is precisely what they, this is what the stone like was trying to do. But this, most of the stone stuff is, I just can't get into it, man. I just, I tried. Yeah,
1: it, it wasn't good.
0: <laughs> no, I literally even bought the audiobook of like, like a collection of all the stone essays. And I was like, oh, I'm going to like listen to these as I'm driving. And they were just so dry and so boring And I was like, this, I can't, I can't do it, you know, but, um, this is kind of fun. So check it out. We'll post the link down below in the show notes so you can give it a little read and have a think about, um, the, uh, qualitative substance of jerkitude. And then, you know, you can go out and write, write response essays. So, (laughs) All right, cool. Well, let's go ahead and um, transition into the final segment of the episode. Let's do uh, the sticky leaves portion. This is the portion of the episode where one of us gets to talk about something that's been giving us meaning in a world that is potentially meaningless. So, Troy, what is giving you joy or hope or power or vitality or whatever in this world?
1: So this last weekend, I saw the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once. Oh, no spoilers, please, because I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, I won't spoil it. Um, okay. I will say, uh, for the background on, on the film, um, it's by uh, two directors who are who go by the combination pseudonym Daniels, because they're both yeah. named Daniel. I Dan love it. It's not even, Daniel it, Shiner. It's not even like the Daniels. It's just Daniels. Just Daniels, yeah. Yeah, I love um, it. They, you may know them previously because they did the film Swiss Army Man with Paul Daniel yeah. and Daniel Radcliffe uh, a, few, a few years ago, which I... It's a kind of an absurd um, tragic comedy, and I, I really enjoyed it. I uh, love it. Yeah, it's a really good movie about uh, Daniel Radcliffe. I mean, this is not spoiling anything in that movie. He's dead, like at the beginning of the movie and through the whole movie, and plus a corpse. Um, so that if that setup strikes your fancy, then uh, you'll like the absurdity of that film. But this film is very different than that, although it has some of the absurdist kind of elements. Um, it stars Michelle Yeoh. And she's a, uh, middle-aged, uh, Chinese immigrant living in America and a uh, crazy sci-fi multiverse shit goes down in the film. None of which I want to spoil because the, the way that it's all revealed is very fun. I will say, I thought it was a wonderful, heartwarming, beautiful, entertaining, uh, popcorn flick that has kind really? of ideas, yeah. has all the heart in the world, um, really cares about its characters. It's mm-hmm. just everything about it's good. Like I, I don't think I'd call it a masterpiece. I mean have only seen it once. So I, I can't say that for sure about anything yet. But I, I loved it more than I've loved. I've loved the experience of watching the film more than I've loved the experience of watching a film in quite a while. Um and I think it's the kind of thing that's destined to be a crowd pleaser while also for all for all kinds of um, like film lovers, from people who just like popcorn flicks to people who love, you know, like real high-minded and culty stuff, so I would recommend it to everybody. I don't want to say much more about it, other than the fact that the sticky leaves is literally about finding meaning in a potentially meaningless universe, no. and that might exactly be the thesis of this film. Um, I don't necessarily... I've, I've talked with some friends about it. I saw it with some friends. And, and I don't know that I, that I fully buy into the way that they construe uh, that thesis. But that is kind of the thesis of the film. So if you enjoy the idea of the sticky leaves, that everything, everywhere, all at once might be your cup of tea. And I would love for you to see it soon, Austin, so that we could talk about it, because I think there's some really interesting um, commentary happening right now about the film, uh, specifically about whether or not it fits the uh thematic like the new thematic um archetype of the millennial uh, parental apology film. I don't know if you've heard any of that discourse no, that's going around right now. No. I
0: haven't. I I've intentionally put some blinders on because I was supposed to see it last weekend or maybe it was the weekend before. I I I've been supposed to see it for a few weeks now and I've been really wanting to see it. Um, I've had a shitload of people message me and say, dude, have you seen it yet? Obviously, you know, this. people who are listening, know this show me the meaning has been, uh, thrown into the dustbin of history. Um, and, uh, sadly, but, um, uh, I've got a lot of people message me and be like, oh my God, this would have been like perfect fodder for show me the meaning so i've had a lot of oh yeah a lot of recommendations for it so i and so i'm like oh shit okay and usually when there's like that much of a landslide of people being like dude you gotta see it it's it's for good reason so i'm excited
1: and i will say try your best to go and see in the theater because it's it's visually really sumptuous yeah Yeah. so it's it's worth worth the 10
0: 12 bucks or whatever cool 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 i didn't know that it was like
1: sci fi Uh, Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's not – it's not um, necessarily like the the exhaustive of the form of the film or anything, but certainly the plot is is sci-fi heavy. And multiverse and everything, everywhere, all at once.
0: So I'm assuming there's going to be some interesting like philosophy of time shit going on here too, huh? Um,
1: I mean, it certainly incorporates some of that. It it really trades hard on the relationship between the, the central family though. That's the beating heart of the film. Is the family, their dynamics, and their relationship, and the rest of it is really just sort of a a medium to to get at that and to really represent the uh, intensity of that relationship. Oh, cool!
0: And you know, one of the things that um, is great is um, one of the one of the main actors in it is I don't know how you say his name, but Ki Hye Kwan? Is that how you say his name? Um, uh, yeah, he's the he's the father. Okay, he's the father. He was short round in Indiana Jones and Temple of the Doom and Data in the
1: Goonies. No way.
0: Yeah, dude.
1: No way. Yeah, Holy dude. Holy shit. <laughs> I had no idea. Blows my mind.
0: Bro. <laughs> That's fucking short round, bro. I know.
1: Oh, God, it's so exciting. I, the, the problem is I can't imagine short rounds turning into this guy. <laughs> Unless some like real weird shit happened to him. So I'm Uh, glad I didn't know that before the film. (laughs) Gosh,
0: I know. So, but I thought that was funny when I, when I found that out, I was like, damn. Um, I was watching Temple of the Doom, uh, the Temple of Doom last weekend. So um, I was like, oh, I wonder what this guy's up to. And I was like, no way. That's the dude. Cause fucking, yeah. I was like, awesome. Anyway. Yeah, man. I can't wait to see it. Uh, Sounds great. I'm excited. So I'll let you know as soon as I do. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in to another episode. Um, remember to um, be, I guess, geared up for the patron-chosen topic. We're going to talk about the ethical CEO, like bougie class trader topic, as well as – I mean, what is it with Job? Is it just to talk about the story of Job? Is that kind of what's
1: the – Yeah, it's the book of Job, and so we're going to – try to find some kind of creative way to address that since we've talked about job before. I think I, there was this, I had this old book
0: that my old, my old advisor gave me. God, I wish I had it. Um, Philip Goodchild gave this to me. It was on job. And at the time it was like a really inventive reading of job. That was kind of making its way around like the theology and, and whatnot circles. (laughs) Um, I'm going to – I might have to find it or find my notes on it and see if there's – because I'm actually looking – it's it's back in California, um, so I don't even have it with me here. Um, but oh. uh, yeah, it was like this really fucking expensive hardback. That's all I remember. It was like like the first week of me arriving in England, everyone in the grad community was like, you got to have this book. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so, so I got it. Um, but yeah, yeah, that will be cool. Um, if you're not a patron and you want to get involved in how you can suggest – Uh, topics for future episodes head over to patreon.com slash owls at dawn that's patreon.com slash owls at dawn you can throw us some pennies that helps us out and um, it helps us be able to pay for our wonderful new producer as well maddie what up maddie um and yeah things have just been hectic on my end the last couple weeks as i'm kind of finishing up a, a big research project so that's why there was a little bit of a delay in releasing but uh we're back uh, I got to make time so that we can get to episode seventeen ninety six when we have our big fallout, which then leads to the big, <laughs> which leads to the big reconciliation, so that we can push through to three thousand. So, uh, so we got to make sure that we're consistent moving forward now. But we will. And uh, so, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Unless there's anything that uh, you want to say, Troy.
1: Uh, just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Das Marikonski. Merikonski. <laughs>